Well, that's a fun story, isn't it? So, anyway, I'm Eric Eaton. Uh, I'm one of the elders here, and uh, I'll be speaking today because uh, evidently Scott wants to work on his rock and roll career. So uh, um, this is the first of three services, too, uh, just because we have so many people here. Just great to see you all here. Uh, if you don't like this message, just stick around. It may get better as the day goes on. So yeah, I, last Saturday, I just got back from uh, what, our Knights of Heroes camp. And that's a camp we run. It's for children of fallen soldiers. And uh, we always say it's one of the most exhaustingly amazing weeks of our lives. Uh, it's the best week of the year, we say. Because the, even though we're going 90 miles an hour, you know, doing rock climbing and rafting and hiking, and I've got late night talks with the kids and early morning Bible studies with the uh, mentors, you know, it's that reality that I'm not a teenager anymore. <laughs> and every year it gets a little tougher and tougher. But it's also amazing because these kids are just phenomenal. And they're great kids, you know, dealing with one of the worst things you can imagine, the loss of a father. And the mentors that we've, we've been able to get around us that God's blessed us with are some of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. And one of the, the coolest things I get to do, I get to do a lot of cool things at the camp, but one of the coolest is the closing ceremony. So our closing ceremony is all the, the first through third kids, they're your kids, they start out down at our lodge with their mentor, and they walk up a really long path up a hill where we have this grand kind of ceremony staged, and we make it large for a reason. As they walk up this hill, and they're, they're the, really like the last portion of it is lined with, with mentors, with uh, older kids, with um, some of the junior mentors, when they come into the setting, I get to stand there dressed as a full knight, head to toe in my night gear. And we make it kind of awe-inspiring for them. I used to ride in on a horse, but that scared the bejeebies out of me, so I stopped doing that. <laughs> saw my life fast before my eyes too many times. But as these kids come before me, we speak into their lives. We, we tell them the things we've seen about them. We encourage them, and they, they kneel before me, and I get to put a sword on their shoulder and knight them and, and ask that they'll keep the knight's code that we've been teaching them all week about rising up, about living more than this world is telling them to live. And then I get to give the first-year kids a crest, and it's their family crest of, of what their name means, to remember their father and where they came from, but also where they're going. And I get to give the graduating seniors a really cool sword, which they all want to fight with afterwards. It's a little frightening, but it's a cool experience. And, and wearing all this stuff, uh, the one thing I've learned is having this Helmet, the sword, this, this chain mail on, the shield is that knights were really tough dudes. <laughs> I mean, I wear this stuff for about 90 minutes. At the end, my legs are shaking, my back hurts, and that's just like 90 minutes, and, I, and, and just holding the sword back and forth. And when I started, like, kind of, like, after I started working this a couple of times, I started researching knights and realizing what they have to do. And I really couldn't imagine you know, I have this for non for 90 minutes and can barely make it. They wear it all day. I started thinking about what it's like to fight as a knight and wear this stuff all day in the heat of battle and fighting with it. Uh, you know, Ty Tyler came up and picked up this sword. It's like, this is heavy. And I, you know, I kind of joked, yes, for real men. But I joked like, I'm not one of them either. Because <laughs> I like holding this all day and fighting and staying in the battle was amazing. And I also think you could identify knights by their broken noses, because I'm pretty sure you can't wear that helmet and not have your nose broken. But the realization is that, is that you have to wear all this stuff. Because if you think about what knights did and how they fought, the, the battle was all around them. It was hand-to-hand. -hand. 
you had to protect yourself. Because if you think about it, the sword is the only offensive weapon that they have. Everything else is defensive. Everything else is to protect them from the battle. And as I reflect on this, and every time I put this, this stuff on, I, I put these, this armor on, I always think about Ephesians 6, where, where Paul's talking about the armor of God and how important it is for us as we live in this day and age to protect ourselves. The, the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith. You know, we need to put this on for a reason. Is it heavy? Is it cumbersome? Absolutely. Is it necessary? Absolutely. We have to protect ourselves from this world because we are so distracted, because there's so many temptations. And that if we don't protect ourselves, we are going to fall in the battle and we will grow weary. To kind of illustrate this better this morning, we're going to take a look at two people in the Bible. And we're continuing on in our series, looking at David and grace changes everything. And this morning, we're going to be looking at David and Uriah. And this is kind of a continuation of what Scott talked about last week with David and Bathsheba. So these stories are, are obviously very intertwined. So if you didn't hear what uh, Scott had to say last week, I encourage you to go back to the OBJ website and listen to his sermon. But to start off with, I want to take a look at David. David was, and where he was in this process. Because if we go a little further, a little earlier back in our scripture, we see that it was springtime. And it's the time of year that the kings went off to battle. It just means that it wasn't winter and it wasn't cold, so they could sleep in tents. So that's what they went off to fight their battles. And it's the time of year the kings went off to battles. But David didn't. And think about it. David was one of the greatest warrior kings, arguably, to ever live. He never backed away from a fight, yet he stayed home. And this was mistake number one for David, is he stayed home. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. Now, we also see in this passage that David wasn't necessarily busy. He didn't seem to have a lot to do. And we know historically at this time in his life, he conquered a bunch of lands. He'd kind of built this palace. I'm not sure he had a lot of projects left to work on. And so he was kind of comfortable. And I think because he was comfortable, he figuratively and literally put his armor down. He set his armor aside. Because we know that at this point, since I guess he didn't have much to do, he's taking a nap. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And it says he got up from his nap. He was kind of essentially bored. And what do we do when we're bored? What are some of the things that we do when we're bored? You can tell me. Eat. Eat. What else? Surf the web. TV. What else? See, you're never bored, so you don't even realize what you do when you're bored. <laughs> yeah, try to find something to do. This is exactly where David was. David, not seeming to have some, enough to do, goes up to his rooftop. He looks out at all the other rooftops because he's above it. And he's checking his social media feed. This is what he's doing. Because from his rooftop, he can kind of see, oh, looky there, man. John got a new weaving loom. That's awesome. He looks a little further. Hey, look, Nancy's garden's coming in pretty nice. I like what she's doing with the begonias. You know, oh, yeah, Nancy, she's, she's out on a uh, trip to Egypt. I can't wait to see those pictures. He's like, oh, hey, man, Bill got a brand new chariot. That thing's four horsepower. It's awesome. That's what he was doing. He was checking his social media. And in and of itself, 
that's not a bad thing. You know, the bad thing is, what is it keeping you from, for one thing, and then what can it lead to? Because that's kind of um, moving into mistake number two for David. Because we don't know David's motivation for going out on the roof that night. You know, as some of us are prone to do, we kind of go on the web looking for trouble, don't we? You know, not knowing, we don't want to go someplace bad, but we're just kind of seeing what's going to pop up. And David could have been in that instance, kind of seeing what trouble it might be out there. Or he just could have been completely innocent, and we've probably been there too when stuff popped up, even though we're innocently looking for stuff. But mistake number two was David, in that moment of, of kind of looking over his social media feed, saw a woman bathing. And that was mistake number two, is he didn't turn his eyes. He didn't look away. He lingered. And in that moment of lingering, he began to open his heart and his mind to darkness. Now, mistake number three was that he pushed a little further. In our world, David clicked on the image. He wanted to find out more about her and scan her biography. She, he learned, oh, she's the daughter of Iliam. She's a Gileanite. Oh, and she's uh, married to Uriah the Hittite. That's interesting. At this point, David could have stopped. He could have, he could have shut it down, but he didn't. He kept on going and kept stepping further and further into the darkness. Mistake number four was he contacted her. And he didn't contact her for a cup of coffee. David was kind of all in at this point to fulfill his own lusts and desires. And remember, David had multiple wives. He had a concubine. He did not need Bathsheba to fulfill his desires. At this point in the story, David doesn't care about what his actions do or will do to those around him. He has enough information to shut it down. He knows she is married, and not only married, married to Uriah the Hittite, a close fighter of David, someone in David's inner circle. Mistake number five was he followed through with his intent and fulfilled his own desires. There are a bare minimum of five times David could have stopped this. Five times he could have shut this down, but he didn't. And it only gets worse from here. At this point, we know Bathsheba finds out she's pregnant, and instead of admitting his sin and being honest, David commits his mistake number six, where he comes up with his elaborate plan to cover up his sin. David sends for Uriah, who is actually where he's supposed to be, and he's fighting the battle. And when he arrives, he asks how the battle's progressing, then tells him to go home and relax, hoping that he'll go be with his wife. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept at the, at the gate with the other guards, because even though Uriah was a Hittite, he had adopted a lot of the Jewish law. And one of the, th- one of the Jewish customs was that you wouldn't engage in, in sexual relations during a battle. The irony is that David would have known this. This was custom, yet he's still pushing Uriah into this moment. But Uriah wouldn't back down. When David found out about this, he summoned Uriah and asked him why he didn't go home. And Uriah, remember kind of a foreigner, foreigner has a very godly answer because he says, the ark and my men are in tents. Now, this is an interesting point here because if the ark was in a tent with the men, that means the ark was at the battlefield. The ark of the covenant wasn't back with David. This is very kind of damning evidence that the ark and the men were at the battle and David was still at home. He was not where he should have been. 
And so Uriah says that with his soldiers in the ark there, how can I go home and enjoy myself? David, in a desperate attempt to push this narrative even further, commits mistake number seven. He brings Uriah to the palace and gets him drunk again, hoping that one more chance he can kind of get Uriah to go be with his wife. That doesn't work, so David goes completely off the rails with mistake number eight and writes a letter to Joab telling Joab to put Uriah at the front of the battle and have everyone back off so Uriah will die and fix my problem. This is the problem when we lie, deceive, manipulate, and sin. And if we don't confess it up front, then we have to keep pushing our narrative. We have to believe this lie for ourselves. We have to believe it or else we can't act upon it. We can't act as callous as David did in that moment. We have to believe this is someone else's fault or problem that we have to fix if we don't confess our sins. Even to the point of putting a loyal friend and subject to death. Now let's look at Uriah the Hittite and compare this, his actions, to David's. We learn in 2 Samuel 23, 39 and 1 Chronicles eleven forty one. Uriah was one of part of uh, David's 30 mighty men. This was his inner fighting force. This was his, like, special forces. I mean, these guys you know, did everything. If you read about their exploits, these, I mean, you would be scared of every one of them. And that was what who Uriah was a part of. And this wasn't some random soldier, but someone that would have had contact with David on a constant and consistent basis, a trusted soldier in his inner circle. And Uriah was focused. I think about it, especially at our camp, because we have a lot of F-16 pilots and C-130 and special forces. You know, and, and they refer to some of these guys as a soldier, soldier. Like, this guy's top-notch. And that's who Uriah was. He was a soldier, soldier. And he was focused. He was so focused, I mean, he probably deleted all his social media accounts. I mean, he probably he got rid of his phone, obviously, because they had to go find him. I mean, he, he was hard to contact. Hey, he, he wasn't the type of guy that listened to the Jerusalem News Network because he didn't care what they said about King David or Jerusalem. He was focused. He was in sync with what he should be doing. And that was fighting the battle ahead of him. And he couldn't even be distracted by David or his attempts to get him to compromise his position because he was focused in on what he should be doing. He was doing his job and he was summoned to the field. He couldn't even enjoy the R&R that most soldiers would because he knew the conditions his men were fighting in. Even giving gifts by David and, and getting drunk, David couldn't manipulate him to his plan. And this is the sick irony of this story is that David used Uriah's loyalty and faithfulness against him. David knew that Uriah would do whatever he asked. David knew that if Joab put him on the front lines, Uriah would go, no questions asked. And he did. So David wrote a letter to Joab, and as Scott so eloquently put it last week, he had Uriah deliver his own death sentence to Joab, who in the story was upright, loyal, and above reproach, and faithful and loyal to the end. Uriah, who did the right thing, perished at the hand of David, the man who's referred to as as a man after God's own heart, and his loyal servant killed Uriah. Notice the contrast of these two men in this chapter. 
David thought of himself, his own interests, preserving his name, his legacy, and covering his sin. Uriah, he thought about his soldiers, those fighting for the freedom, God, the ark, and the men back in the battlefield. Even though David tried to get him to, to defy his moral convictions, Uriah held strong. For his character, he was sent to the front line and killed. And Uriah's character is in direct contrast to David's actions. Even when everyone around Uriah chose wrong, everyone in this story is wrong except Uriah. He knew what was right and was committed to doing what was right. And consider your own convictions. I think we all like to think if we're put in a tough situation, we'd stand strong, like Uriah. But would we? How strong are we with our own convictions to stand in the face of the king and defy him because of what we believe in? That's powerful. Now, this is a... This is a very strange biblical story. If someone took this story and made it into a movie, when you went and saw it, you would leave with kind of like a uh, feeling. Because it, it just doesn't sit right. I, I think of that if, uh, when I came out of the movie Unforgiven, if you remember that one with Clint Eastwood, it was kind of like, what was that? Because there's no heroes in this story. There's no resolution. There, there, there's no, like feel-good scene at the end, like after the climax. It's a very strange story. Because David, who we've been rooting for all along, in the last several months as we've been looking for him, as, as David you know, defeated Goliath and he hid in caves because he refused to, to kill Saul and did the right thing, he just goes bad really quickly. And bad in, in a really, really awful way. And it's difficult to root for him because he's so callous. And what he's doing. And if you're like me, you're kind of, you're kind of relieved when Nathan kind of comes in and, and tells the story. And it kind of snaps David back to the David we know. Because he's acting very strange. And then you have Uriah. I mean, Uriah lost everything. He lost his wife. He lost his life. All because he did the right thing. He acted upright and justly and was severely punished because of his actions. While David, keeping his life, he was punished for it. And his life would never be the same after this, but he still got to live. What can we learn from a passage like this? And, and I think there's, there's volumes we can learn about integrity and accountability and compassion and commitment. And you could probably come up with a lot of those on your own. But what's a good takeaway from a story that leaves a bad taste in your mouth? There's two things I want to look at this morning and I want you to, to concentrate on. And the first is the importance of focus in our lives. Because this story, we have the great contrast of what happens when we focus on what's right and when we focus on what's wrong. David seemed to have lost focus in, in concentrating all his efforts on something that doesn't matter. He wasn't where he should have been, was focusing on the wrong thing, and that caused him to do the wrong thing. And this is the important part. Because if someone like David, and listen carefully, if someone like David, a man after God's own heart, a guy in the Psalms who, who wrote things like, I meditate on you all day long, I seek you in the morning, you are my shield, I, 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 I long to be with you. If a man like that could fall so far, how much more can we? If David, I mean the man who's looked at like one of the most amazing people in the Bible, did this atrocious act, what are we in for? Then you have Uriah, 
who had focus, and his focus gave him purpose. He was in the battle not only fighting for God, but for King David and his other men. As a soldier, this gave Uriah immense purpose and focus on what mattered. His focus was so strong, he couldn't be manipulated by David or his actions. And I I dare say at this point, David in his life had lost some, some purpose. He didn't go off to battle. He finished money of his project, and he seemed rather unfazed by his actions to this point, which is kind of the most surprising part. You're like, eh, I guess I'll just kill him now. How do you get to that point? He lost focus. David's full-time job seemed to be covering up his sin. That's, that seemed to be what he, he was spending all his time doing. And what you have to realize about this situation, what you have to realize about these characters is no matter who you are in any given situation, you're either Uriah or you're David. There's no third option. You don't get the opportunity to be neutral in the face of sin. You're either going to focus on God or focus on yourself. You're either going to do God's will or your own. You're either going to seek God's provision or think you can provide for yourself. And you see what happens when we try to choose ourselves. In any, given, in any given situation that's presented to you in life, you either have the ability to focus on yourself or focus on God. And that's it. Because anything else other than God is yourself or the world, and it's a bad, damaging road to go down. You know, focus is more interesting when it comes to Uriah, because he did what was right. He was above reproach. He acted justly, and he lost his life for it. And this doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't sit well with me. Because how many of us are willing to give up our convictions or tell a little white lie to save our lives? How many of us are a little, we're willing to sell our soul just a bit just so we can get what we want, let alone save our lives? Yet Uriah didn't. He held strong. He focused in on what matters. You know, we, we read these words in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 about focus. It says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Exactly where David was. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, where should our focus be? Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy... Uh, well, I lost my face. Fix it, the, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary or lose heart, which is exactly what David had done. I believe the question for us through this passage is simply, where is our focus? What are we focusing on in our lives, and are we arming ourselves appropriately for the battle ahead? I think the next thing to take away from this story is, is what this whole series is about, and that the grace truly does change everything. Because under Jewish law, David and Bathsheba should have been stoned for adultery. That was the law. They did it all the time. If we did what David did in our day and age, think about the consequences. We would lose our family. We would lose our job. We would lose our finances. 
and we'd be in jail for the rest of our lives, or worse, for committing what he did. David did this awful, despicable act and should have been immediately put to death. And while he did have to suffer the consequences of his actions, and he did repent, and God punished him, God still used him. He continued to use him throughout his life. And even as Scott mentioned last week, we're still talking about this sin 3,000 years later. How would you like to have that situation? <laughs> but this is the powerful message of this passage, and I want you to listen carefully here. Because cause I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what you woke up heavy on your heart with today. But in my simple mind, I know this. I know there is nothing you have done, there is nothing you are doing, and there is nothing that you will do that will separate you from the love of God. As, as Paul so greatly put it in Romans eight, thirty-eight and 39, he said, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death or life, angels or demons, fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. That sounds pretty intense. No power in the sky above or the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what can separate us from the love of God? What can separate us from the love of God? There we go. Nothing. Nothing you can do. Whether you're dealing with lust, sexual addiction, pornography, greed, pride, cheating, lying, self-loathing, or even suicide, you are loved beyond measure by the power of Jesus Christ and what he did for your sins on the cross. And there's nothing you can do, no matter how despicable you think you are, to change that. Nothing you can do to change that. Because let's put this story in perspective. Because if God can still redeem a lying, cheating, manipulative murderer in David, you better believe he's big enough to love you regardless of your actions and has enough grace to give you no matter who you are. So the Monday morning factor for you today is as you leave this, as you wake up tomorrow, you start your day, you go to work, continue your vacation, whatever you may be doing, I want you to think about a couple things. First off, are you arming yourself enough and do you have the focus enough in order to keep out all the distractions and temptations in this life? What are you tempted with and what are you doing to guard those in your life? And what can you do tomorrow to wake up to fight the battle and have the conviction to live a life knowing you are loved and there's more than enough grace to cover anything in your life? Let's pray. Lord God, I just want to thank you for this message and thank you for your word. Um, just thank you for, the, for what you've given us and kind of this odd story of David and Uriah, Lord. That you love us no matter what. That you're there for us no matter what, Lord. And, and even when things in life doesn't work out as we want and as we plan, there's still your glory to be seen. I just pray over us as we leave this place, Lord God, that we could be able to, to protect ourselves from the temptations of this world because there's so many and they come from all directions, Lord. Keep us safe, keep our eyes focused on you and that 
all we do would glorify your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I just want to say, if, if this touched you in some way, you want to talk more, I'm here, Scott's here, you know, come and talk to us about it and, and, and see what we can do to focus together. All right. So everyone have a great afternoon. God bless.